This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. It's my pleasure to uh, introduce Scott Donatin from the Ad Age Group. He's the associate publisher and managing editor of Ad Age. And some of you might know him more from Madison and Vine, where he's uh, the ringleader, the guy who holds it together. Um, it's a pleasure to have him here. He's someone who I think, fr- from an industry that frequently does not speak our language and is an industry that we constantly try to cajole into action. Here's someone who is very much doing the kind of thing that we like to do as well. So without further ado, Scott. Thank you. Good evening. I'm going to anchor myself here for at least the first 15 minutes, so I apologize for that. But um, I, do have a, I do have a speech. And, and while I've got pieces of it, it, it comes from things I truly believe in. Uh, it, it's actually the first time I'm giving it in a written way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang here, and then I'll sort of float more and, and be happy to take questions once I go. Um, uh, I have titled this speech, Out of Control. I don't mean necessarily that I'm out of control, but I did leave the word by uh, off of there. Um, and, and it's not, uh, as well, it's not about the war in Iraq or about why you see so many bladder control commercials on network news broadcasts, but it's about what I think is the biggest shift happening to marketing not surprisingly, since the advent of television. I'm going to try not to be, obviously, too simplistic, but I'll just sort of give you my real-world view of what's been happening in this business. Um, let me, if you will, I'll indulge me with an opening by telling you what it is that I do for a living, in part because many of the challenges that I think we face at the Ad Age Group right now, um, and the Ad Age Group is really kind of a made-up name for, you'll see some of the products underneath, but primarily Advertising Age and some of the spin-off products within our company um, but what we're hap- what's happening to our business and the challenges we face very closely mirror what's happening in the industries that we're covering. And I think we actually even find that every time I go out and talk to a CEO or a CMO in our space, they're kind of shocked to realize that, that you know, we understand what's happening to them because it's happening to us as well. And I think that is, is different from what it's been in the past where we've been more of a detached observer of what's happening to them. So... In March of this year, after seven years as the editor of Ad Age, I was, I was named, uh, I was going to say promoted, but it's probably debatable, uh, associate publisher and editorial director of, of the group. And when I was asked by people who knew me for a long time what it is that I do, and I think a lot of people in my staff asked that a lot behind my back as well, um, I, I often found that I was defining it by specific areas of responsibility, saying that I oversee for example, our events and conferences group, our online and digital products, uh, our global licensing program. Um, but when I was feeling particularly you know, 35,000 foot about it all, I realized that there was actually an overarching theme to my job, uh, which I guess I, w- I would sum up um, thusly. This should work. Um, we are no longer a weekly newspaper. We are a brand of information. And my job and, and my goal is really to take the bias out of our business model. And, and I, the first time I said that, people looked at me and my company like I, I didn't know what I was talking about. But what I mean by that is that for, for many decades, beginning in 1930, not surprisingly, advertising age was defined by its method of distribution. We were a weekly newspaper 
dedicated to covering breaking news of the advertising, marketing, and media industry, which really meant we covered the hirings and firings of ad agencies and the comings and goings of the marketing directors who hired and fired those ad agencies and the ups and downs of the newspaper, magazine, and television businesses. In fact, at that time, newspapers were our primary part of our advertising base. Today, Ad Age is not a weekly newspaper, nor is it very tech-savvy, apparently. I'm going to do that one more time. No. Why am I? Thank you. We still have a weekly newspaper. We still have one of those. And quite honestly, it's still the biggest, most profitable part of our brand. But we are a brand, a brand of news and information and data on advertising and marketing and media delivered through whatever platforms make the most sense for our audience and, yes, our advertisers as well. The weekly newspaper is one expression of that brand. Our website's another. And our website, again, not surprisingly, is the fastest growing right now, followed closely by our events business, which is the second uh, fastest growing part of our model right now. And quite simply, and this may seem simplistic, but until recently we didn't realize that our events and conferences we're, we're simply another way to distribute our content and to connect our community. So we now produce real-time news, online video interviews, audio podcasts, and specialty email newsletters on such topics as China, Hispanic marketing, and digital media. Our content now covers not just traditional advertising, but interactive, gaming, mobile, branded entertainment, direct marketing, CRM, public relations, word of mouth, packaging and product innovation, design, architecture, you name it. We're not just looking at which marketing director has hired which agency. We're looking at the myriad of strategies that they're employing, the tactics and the ideas that work, and of course those that don't. But it's still one thing to say you're a brand and quite another to truly act like one. It means changing your mindset and culture, changing your business model, and changing your positioning in the minds of the marketplace, which is not easy. I mean, imagine I'm telling Rance Crane, whose father founded Advertising Age in 1930 and who still owns the company, that I don't care whether Ad Age exists as a print publication five or ten years from now. And imagine me telling him that I want to put at risk the revenue that basically is going to fund his children's and grandchildren's future, because I believe we have to do that. I believe we have to put at risk uh, our entire business model, or else it's just going to be stolen out from under us in any case. And because I don't care whether we exist as that print product in 10 years, I care that we're the leading brand in our field, whether the primary expression of that is a website, a podcast, or quite honestly, a T-shirt printed with stories on the front and ads on the back. And this comes down to kind of the central premise of why, because it's not about what we want. It's about what our audience wants. It's certainly not about protecting a platform, but about serving a community. And we realize increasingly, uh, and we're getting rid of some of our past arrogance, that our journalism isn't the last word, but the beginning of a dialogue. And now I'm going to sort of translate that to the bigger picture, because this isn't just about ad age. It's an issue that our entire industry faces. And, and the quote up top, Kevin Roberts, the CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, speaking at a conference a year ago, told the audience of marketers, the consumer now has absolute power. It is not your goddamn brand. Yes, thanks in large part to the breathtaking rise of digital technologies, and I don't have to tell you what they are, cell phones, Blackberries, broadband video, DVRs, etc. Consumers are firmly in charge, and, and the real news is that they know it. One college student was quoted in the New York Times when asked why he doesn't go to the movies very often, quote, I want to do things that conform to my time frame, not somebody else's. You don't want to watch a TV show at 9 p.m. on Saturday night, complete with the commercial interruption. Obviously, no problem. Store it on your DVR. There's 10 million in use in the U.S. now, going up to 18 million in the next year. 
Watch it the next night. Fast forward through all the commercials along the way. Network TV schedules imposed on viewers by executives are history, and the viewer is now in charge. And again, I'm sure most of this is not coming as a surprise to all of you. I'm sure it's part of your everyday lives. We know the same thing happens with iPod and how that's disrupted the music industry, and yet we still see Hollywood sitting back trying to protect a distribution window and, and a method of distribution that I think they have no choice but to give up on at some point. Of course, this control changes everything about marketing, about media, about brands, about creativity, about storytelling, about communications in every form. It's a fundamental perversion of the mass marketing paradigm that ruled for decades, a complete upending of the intrusion-based interruptive model that relied on that passive consumer in favor of an invitational one in which the end user controls how, when, and of course whether, most scary to advertisers, to interact with communications in all forms. The marketer is out of control. There's that title of the speech. Or more specifically, they've ceded control. And that transfer of power is at the heart of every major trend we see these days in marketing, from the decline of network TV to the explosion in online spending, from the rise of branded entertainment, or what we call Madison and Vine, to the proliferation of user-generated content in online communities. These are just small examples. I, don't, I assume you can see that fairly well, but the chart on the left basically shows uh, what happens to what total media growth is, but, but how much of that is actually accounted for by the internet. Don't necessarily try to reconcile it with the numbers on the right. There are two different surveys, and if you've looked at any advertising spending surveys, you'll know that there's no consistency between them at all, uh, except in the general trends. And, you know, for example, in the year 2006 on this side, total media spending growth of 3.7%, but that's 26.8% internet growth and only 2.5%. And, and scary, again, we know how hard it is to predict that far out, but they're predicting that in 2010, total media spending will decline 1.4% from the previous year, but that will be based on a 2.1% drop in traditional media and a 6.8% rise still in the internet off of what will obviously be a, be a very significant base at that point. And again, you see a similar thing in this Verona Sula forecast on the right, which is that traditional media is climbing 18% while, uh, or, or sorry, new media is climbing 18% in, in this year uh, compared to 3.5% for advertising in traditional media. Uh, magazine spending, uh, you know, is very flat this year. And what's interesting is, if, again, if you look at the numbers that come out there, they're actually not reliable, and the, and the true picture is much worse because the officially reported numbers don't reflect what actually happens with things like rate negotiation, where magazines like Time and Newsweek are really selling their ad pages for 50 or 60 percent off of their rate card, and yet when they report the numbers through to the industry, that's being counted as if that's real revenue. So the market is out of control. They've ceded this power. And uh, it, it has impact uh, for, for, and I believe this is the biggest thing happening in our industry right now for ev everything to do with marketing. Um, but what's really interesting is that that means that marketing is both more and less important. My, my colleague Jonah Bloom, who's now the editor of Ad Age, said in the column recently, marketing is dead, long live marketing. There's a rebirth and a death going on. The marketing of 20 years ago is obviously rapidly becoming obsolete. The days of the non-professional marketing chief who was trained in another department and relied heavily on his agency of record, and I say his on purpose as well, and spent the vast majority of his budget on TV, 70 or 80 percent, and measured that in terms of eyeballs, is being replaced rapidly by a highly professional breed of marketing executive. 
he or she is a much more important driver of growth for the company than his predecessors, much more likely to employ a whole range of agencies and even individuals to help them achieve those goals, is tailoring his or her model to consumer and company needs rather than relying on some pre-established notion of what a marketer does, and is finding new, much more effective ways of measuring the return on that investment. Of course, they're also under unprecedented pressure to perform with the average lifespan of less than two years in the CMO seat, as you see there, which is about half the average shelf life of the CEOs to whom they report. And of course, those CEOs are already in their jobs not very long. The good news is that marketing is actually more important in today's fast-changing world. And to understand why, I want to take a very quick look at three forces that are shaping the world today that I think were very well described by Daniel Pink in A Whole New Mind as the three A's of Asia, automation, and abundance. Again, I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of these, so I won't spend a lot of time, but Asia and automation kind of get summed up uh, in looking at the shift to a marketing economy by saying that these twin forces have pushed the Western world to a place where most products and services are a commodity. As General Electric's Jeffrey Imelt noted, the Western economy from the 60s through the 90s was focused on manufacturing processes, management processes, and labor outsourcing to squeeze every last cent out of the cost structure. Today, it's obviously much harder to gain an edge that way, and more companies need to look to add value to their products and services, not through their engineering or how cheaply they manufacture them, but through the meaning that they can give those products in consumers' lives through the design of those products and through the stories behind them. We were actually just talking about how the Frank Geary buildings are essentially a branding statement in a lot of ways for MIT, and, and we're holding an advertising conference in New York next, uh, next month at which uh, Gary and David Rockwell are both speaking. So there's a whole new language going on here. The imperative of, of Asia and automation is really underscored in, in the idea of abundance, the, the third A. Um, there's just too much stuff in our society. We have more stuff than we've ever had. In our grandparents' days, you know, a car was a luxury, and today there are more cars in the country than there are driver's licenses. We have so much stuff that we now have a $23 billion storage industry in the United States. I mean, think about that. 20 years ago, there was almost no storage business at all. Today, it's $23 billion. And it's really hard in that kind of a market for any company to find an unfulfilled need. So the point is that as with automation and Asian outsourcing, abundance has created this imperative to add a different type of value to products. It's not about selling more for less. It's about selling the same amount of products for more. And it's about adding value through meaning, through emotion, through storytelling, and through greater aesthetic appeal to the products. There's actually a book out there called The Substance of Style, which delivers a whole chapter to the toilet brush arms race. That's actually a toilet brush up in the upper left-hand corner there. Um, I mean, think about this. How do you make money out of toilet brushes today? Everybody's got one, hopefully. Everybody knows how to use them, hopefully. And it's difficult to think about what you'd add to a toilet brush to make people think that their old one is insufficient. Now, the funny thing is I actually had written here, parenthetically, are you going to add a built-in MP3 player? And that was a joke that might have even gotten a little bit of a laugh, except for the fact that in the Wall Street Journal today is a story about a new toothbrush with music player built into it. So, you know, <laughs> nothing's a joke anymore. But they're all cheap to manufacture. They're, they're a commodity. So what's developed is a movement to add style and meaning to them, to design them better, to market them, to have famous names, and to advertise them as the finishing touch in a swanky new bathroom rather than a utility item, which is why you can now pay $5 for a toilet brush if you want or $25 for a toilet brush. P&G, which is obviously the biggest packaged goods company in the world, today has more designers than engineers. 
Think about that. That's amazing. And by the way, they're part of the marketing department, which is a fairly new thing as well. P&G today involves its marketing executives in product development right from the whiteboard ideation moment. And companies such as GE, Nike, Apple, HP, and Motorola have also earned seats at that innovation table, obviously, and are slowly but surely getting more respect for what marketing can bring to their companies, not just, again, in the sense of selling more, but in the sense of increased profit per sale. Last year, price increases accounted for 122% of all sales growth in America, and that number is even higher in most European countries. Sales and foot traffic have declined, but marketers found they were able to boost prices in a way they hadn't for decades. Some of that, of course, is about passing on the cost of raw materials, but most of it is accounted for by a shift away from low prices. Gillette, as one example, upped the cost of razor blades by 75 cents. P uh, Starbucks, as you probably know, recently just raised the price of all of its cups of coffee by a nickel, regardless of the starting price. P&G has recently introduced a version of its Crest toothpaste at a 50% premium, and Coca-Cola introduced Coke Black, at $2 for an 8-ounce bottle. Even Burger King greatly managed to increase the average ticket, uh, the average sale per customer, even as its foot traffic fo fell. And Walmart, if you've been following them, has been moving away and trying to add value to products and not just focusing on low price. Behind all of these shifts, of course, is a marketing story. It's a marketer trying to imbue a product that has realistically parity with many of its competitors with qualities that will allow them to sell less products for more money. That's a little cartoon. It says, choose wisely. One door leads to increased return on investment, the other to market meltdown. ROI has been the most overused word in the marketing business of the last couple of years to the point where people don't even know what they're talking about when they say it anymore. If you push them on what they think it means, they don't even have a good answer anymore. All of that leads to a more professional, though, and respected view of the marketing function, even as it adds greater attention to the bottom line and the measurement of marketing. CEOs, CFOs, and procurement officers, as well as the marketing folks, are trying to work out whether they're spending their marketing money in the right way and what they're getting back for that. About 50% of Fortune 5 companies now have some kind of procurement or buying executive involved in their ad agency selections and media purchase processes, which the industry hates, by the way. And every single marketer is under pressure to prove that what he or she is doing is working. And ROI, of course, no longer means how many eyeballs saw my TV ad. More and more, it means measuring how many consumers took a certain action as a result of seeing that commercial message, how many went to the t from the TV spot to the URL. Um, you guys want to guess about how many commercials now have URLs in them? 50. 5 to 95. About 50% of them now use URLs, and how many made a purchase from there? How many people who received that email from their car company about their oil needing changing then visited the service center or downloaded the manual provided to them online? There's actually an automaker in Europe. I'm forgetting which one. It's somebody who sells their cars here as well um, that's done that extremely successfully. They, they, their main marketing dollars now go behind direct marketing and CRM and reaching out to their customers to remind them when they need to buy a new car and when they need an oil change, and it's, it's had a significant increase on the bottom line. They want to know how many people went from a news article to visit the site of the brand or an organization, how many people who saw the Jumbotron at the concert then you know, texted in an SMS code to get a free music download, etc. Like everything else about marketing today, measurement has become more complicated, more interactive, and more creative. It's not enough to have a rough gauge of how many people saw your message, although surprisingly those kinds of benchmarks do remain important. You need to know how many people responded to it, what it means in terms of sales, or at least in terms of a proper engagement. 
marketers are really thirsty for some real evidence of any kind of what they call a relationship with the consumer. Although there's a great article on our website right now um, where a guy says that looking for engagement is like looking for, you know, Bigfoot. It's just not. It's just a fake notion. And, and, and it's a pretty, pretty credible argument. Traditional ad agencies, and I don't know how much you guys study them or look at them, but they've really struggled of everybody, every one of the stakeholders in our business more than anyone else to keep up with this shift. Too many of them are still building ad campaigns without factoring in any engagement measurement from the beginning. Too many of them are still focused on television commercials, and this is a major source of marketers' discontent. In the last study done by the Association of National Advertisers, which is the biggest group representing all of the country's uh, you know, advertisers across companies like Procter & Gamble and Coke and McDonald's and the like, uh, a majority of the marketers surveyed said they did not feel that their agencies were measuring their ad programs adequately. In fact, there's really evidence of a great deal of discontent from marketers these days with the products they're getting from their agencies. As what they do becomes more closely scrutinized, it's also become more obvious to them that the traditional methods are increasingly cost inefficient which is what's leading them, obviously, to look for new ideas and new tactics. Add to that the fact that they're accepting the increasingly obvious degree to which the consumers are able to control what media they engage with, where they engage with them, and when, and you have that recipe for dramatic change, a situation in which TV is no longer king and the ad agency of record is no longer guaranteed preeminence or dominance in its relationship with the marketer. The rapid growth of broadband video, which will be the ultimate on-demand niche video channel, will only make that more obvious in the next year or two. Savvy marketers today believe that the right idea can come from anywhere and involve any medium and any discipline. The ad market is slowly but surely becoming a project-based economy with new ideas being sought from new types of agencies and partners. And the large ad agencies are increasingly becoming really about execution and distribution of ideas developed elsewhere. While traditional media spending is only slipping slightly, there's a lot of evidence that marketers are willing to spend more with other disciplines. The automakers, for example, are really beginning to shift significant dollars to online media, customer relationship management, and direct marketing for their businesses, as I talked about earlier. And, and again, some of that slip that you don't see yet in traditional media is also because of these false measurements of what the money is. McDonald's once spent two-thirds of its advertising budget on primetime network TV commercials. That figure is now down to less than one-third and falling fast. A.G. Laffley, the CEO of Procter & Gamble, which is the biggest ad spender in the U.S., has demanded that his operating chiefs experiment with innovative marketing. He's made it part of their compensation, and he even declared a holiday at P&G called Consumer is Boss Day. By the way, the date of that holiday is April 23rd, which commemorates the date of the disastrous introduction of New Coke, <laughs> which even though it's not a P&G product, Laffley said, you know, sort of was the beginning of, of, of a consumer revolt that did in a, a, a terrible product launch. Perhaps the primary reason for marketers' increased attention to other disciplines are obvious. Traditional forms just aren't as effective as they once were. A recent McKinsey study showed that while broadcast viewership declined 50% in the U.S. over the last 10 years, the cost to advertise on network TV increased 40%. Measurement has revealed advertising, advertising's weaknesses, proliferation of media and entertainment options, and consumer control technologies like DVRs have, of course, made it very expensive to aggregate a mass audience. But there are other interesting changes that have been wrought by consumer empowerment and the digital revolution and that I think are starting to change marketers' thinking. First of all, the line between content and commercials are blurring. Pioneering marketers have realized that the cleverest way to go about their job 
is not to support some piece of editorial or entertainment content with an ad that might be zapped, ignored, or simply lack any relevance to the consumer seeing it, but rather to create content or to embed themselves into content that consumers choose to interact with. The goal is to be invited in as intrusion is less and less an option. And Madison and Vine, a lot of people when we started at Ad Age thought it was just a sort of passing fad, but again, a study done in, I think, March or April of this year by the ANA of 117 top companies found 66% of them are now doing brand and entertainment. And that's increasingly shifting away from the embedded content into content creation as well. So there could be those kinds of programs, Axe, the Axe Game Killers, is anybody familiar with that video series? is seen as a really good example of, of content creation that people will choose to spend time with. And, and then there's the information side of it. Obviously, there's entertainment and information. If I want to know the best way as a consumer to shovel snow from my driveway, increasingly I don't care if that advice is brought to me by Home Depot as long as it's good advice. If I want to talk to other mothers about an 18-month-old child, I know I look like a strange mother, but, uh, and I don't have an 18-month-old child. I have a 14-year-old. But I know as a mother that the best place I might be able to connect with them could be a P&G Pampers website. And I don't care as long as the information is credible and the sponsorship is, is, is evident. There's a whole, wholesale shift away from marketers seeing themselves as being in the business of creating catchphrases to being in the business of providing useful, meaningful, and most of all, credible content. Another shift relates to marketers' desperation to learn how to tap into the networks of influencers and how to turn consumers into advocates for their brands. And I think that's a fascinating study. 56 brand mentions a week, positives outnumbering negatives, six to one. I don't know how credible it is, but it's a fascinating number. We all probably know that every survey done on this subject shows that consumers trust their friends and family and even their fellow consumers way, way more than they trust corporations, governments, and unfortunately for me, journalists. But until recently, that just seems a st statistic. I can't say certain words tonight. With the advent, however, of mass broadband penetration and internet use, they're starting to see that consumers treated right can be the most effective medium of all. Blog postings, customer reviews, viral stories, and videos have contributed to many marketing success stories in recent months. And you might say that the next major marketing development will be about consumer-to-consumer -consumer marketing rather than business-to-consumer marketing. The challenge for marketers and for anyone who wants their money which means every ad agency and media company in the world, boils down to understanding and learning how to navigate a digital age in which consumers are in control. And believe me, they don't want to and they wish they didn't have to. Those consumers, though, are also willing to put their money where their mouths are. This, to me, of anything I've heard in the last two years was something that, that, that blew me away, which was that uh, starting in 2004, consumers spent more money on media, meaning movie tickets, newspaper subscriptions, satellite radio subscriptions, cable TV bills, and the like, consumers spent more money on that media than advertisers spent trying to reach them through media. And that's a huge power shift because I think a lot of the arrogance of advertisers for years stems from this belief that, you know, you would actually hear them say, well, if you don't want to pay for my content, you know, uh, then, then you can't have it, and, and you better take it, and you better watch the ads, because otherwise... And there was this, this fundamental belief that consumers were not willing to pay for content, and I think we've now seen that they have. Uh, Walt Disney, many of you may know, became the first studio recently to sell films over uh, iTunes, and in the first week they did so, they generated a million dollars in sales, and Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, came out and said that he expects that to continue apace, so he expects... 50 million at least in, in first year sales and, and you can bet that all the other studios are going to follow behind. And again, just like the quote from, the, uh, from this college student in the beginning of the talk, 
uh, Bob Iger was quoted as saying, clearly customers are saying to us that they want content in multiple ways. So these advertisers and, and media companies are beginning to realize that no matter how much they want to stand in the way of consumer empowerment, they really can't. And we had a discussion about this, William and I, earlier, and, and my feeling is as simplistic as it sounds. These, these really smart people who seem to be standing in the way of consumer empowerment, when you, when you really say to them, do you actually think you can stop this? The answer sort of boils down to no, but I can put up enough speed bumps to get safely to my own retirement. And, you know, you think it's overly simplistic, but of course, most people, it all comes down to self-interest, right? So make no mistake, this is nothing short of a revolution. It's a word that I think is not overused in this case. It's the creation of an on-demand economy that flips the advertising and communications model upside down. And it's not going to be easy. I had breakfast this morning with the CEO of one of the largest media companies in the world who basically said, I know morale is terrible around here. I know people are tired of this. But if they don't want change, they're in the wrong business. This is not going to get better anytime soon. And this story we did last year called The Chaos Scenario, which was enormously popular, which essentially sort of you know, exploded the myth that just because the new model was dying, there was going to be a new one that would take its place. The truth is a lot of people have no idea what that new model will be yet. But I do think, and this is a phrase that came up recently at a board meeting for an advertising association that I was at, permission to innovate. More and more marketers are being given permission to innovate. They understand that if they don't change, they're going to get crushed. Burger King has been a great example. And I love that quote again from, from Russ Klein at Burger King, turn your brand over to consumers. Oh, the second part of the quote got cut off there. That's bad. The second part of that quote is, they'll return it to you in better shape. Oh, it is there. I'm sorry. I can't even read. So as this was saying, uh, <laughs> I actually had that on the back end of the quote after his name at one point, so I confused myself by putting it more logically where it belonged. Turn your brand over to consumers. They'll return it to you in better shape. I thought it was a great, great quote. And Burger King, uh, their new campaigns have been really controversial, but there's evidence that it's paying off, uh, not only in terms of things like likability and brand recall, but even in sales, even if sales aren't where Wall Street wants them to be right now, they're up. And they're up, especially among that core consumer of, of young males that Burger King decided to focus on. So, you know, the conclusion is a pretty simple one. It's, it's that change or die kind of thing. But I believe, and I just got back from a major industry conference, that uh, companies like Burger King, which spoke there, like Hewlett Packard, which spoke there, are beginning to embrace innovation, embrace this change, and most of all, respect consumer control. And I think that will give them a chance in the future to succeed. And that's the end of my prepared remarks. Thank you. Um, as I said, happy to take questions and, and hopefully, you know, continue the conversation. So uh, we all know about like the recent purchase of, uh, you know, Google. That bought uh, YouTube company. So, like, you know, advertising model for YouTube, that's like a big discussion among people. Yeah. And if you have used, and you know, I think it's a good model for user created content in general, and, you know, how do you target the right ad, you know, on top of a user created content? Because the risk is huge, I think. I don't know if you think the same. If you put the wrong ad on user created content, both for the user community, you know, if I get Burger King in a video about, I don't know, environmental issues, then, you know, the brand of Burger King for me is much lower right now. And also the other way around for the marketeer, if the video is like a hilarious video of whatever, something that's not appropriate for the brand, so mm -hmm. how do you do this matching? It's a great question. I think um, we were having this discussion earlier, and I actually have, I've been trying to, to come up with a good answer for what I think of, of, the, of the Google uh, YouTube purchase, and I, and I quite honestly don't have one yet. I do think that 
contextual advertising is not, not a surprising statement, but is, is extremely important. And I do think that if you blow it, you blow it. I'm not sure I understand the valuation, and I'm not sure anybody can justify the valuation. And, and yes, there will, there will be the ability to target ads more directly and, and, and more appropriately. And, and, you know, again, I'm in that camp that would love to stop seeing feminine hygiene ads. And I'm sure my girlfriend would love to stop seeing male bladder control prescription medication ads when we watch TV. And, and, and we're moving towards that kind of targeted advertising. But I don't think that's the only answer because I also believe you know, if the answer then becomes, well, we're going to roll the right ad in front of the content and people will accept it, I, I do think it's more about, um, again, advertisers creating content that users are going to choose to go interact with and making that available. And, and, and it's going to be less about showing, intruding with the right ad and more about kind of standing back and giving the users the ability to, to seek your ad out, to find it. We talked earlier about the BMW films from a few years ago, which I still think were a great example. It wasn't about end user control at that point, but it was about giving up control of the brand to the directors in that case. Um, but it was also about, you know, every single person who saw those ads had to go out, look for them, find them, download a, a special, you know, video player at the time to run them in, and then sit through a 10-minute film. And I, I think that, that, that bigger than, than the right ads and the right context, that, that's certainly important. But the bigger issue will be this idea that consumers don't care where they get content from as long as it's meaningful to them. And I think it's going to be more about original content creation and coming up with the kinds of things that people are going to choose to interact with and that will somehow get the selling message across at the same time. Which is why things like the, uh, the Axe Game Killers I think was great. The, uh, the Phillips Body Grooming, the Razor, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, that um, web film. but you know, just wildly popular. And again, on the information side of advertising, things like the P&G uh, websites that they have for moms. At the same time, P&G also has, uh, a, I think, terrible website for Folgers Coffee called toleratemornings.com. And it's, you know, <laughs> under this idea that you're going to go, you're going to wake up in the morning all grumpy and tired, and you're going to go online, and they're going to show you a funny little film, and you're going to laugh, and you're going to feel better about the day ahead of you, and you're going to relate that to Folgers and drink more Folgers. I mean, come on. You know, you know, I don't know how many people are doing that. I'm going to, I don't have access to P&G's data, but I'm going to guess none. <laughs> you know. Well, I think something like the Pampers websites are enormously popular with mothers, and they, they give... I, I actually go back um, in like 92 or 93, when I was a boy, um, there, was, there was an area on Prodigy. Does anybody know what Prodigy is? It was <laughs> actually the largest online service in the country, briefly. Um, and when, back when AOL was third and proprietary dial-up services were what it was about, um, there was a site that Toyota had, and you actually had to, you had to be a Toyota owner to get into it because you had to type your VIN number in. I'm sure there'd be privacy issues and concerns about that now. Um, but what was great about it, and I owned a Toyota at the time and I joined this online community, was that they allowed this completely open you know, discussion among users. So you would go on and say, whatever, my, my 85 Camry you know, makes this weird noise when I turn the windshield wipers on. I've had it in with three mechanics. None of them know what's going on. And somebody else would write back and go, yeah, it's a really crappy thing, but you know, go to the mechanics, tell them to do this, and that should take care of the problem or whatever. And it actually increased your respect for Toyota, and yet they yanked it down in a couple of months. And I finally, I tracked down people at Toyota and their agency for a while, and finally got one of them to admit to me that they were scared. They, 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 you know, marketers don't want to let go. 
They have, you know, Pillsbury Doughboy for, you know, has a book, literally, of, you know, what clothes he can wear, what words he can say, what poses he can be in. You know, how does a company that's done that, that's controlled the image right up to the user's eyeballs and an industry that's controlled the message right up to people's eyeballs for, for 100 years, suddenly transfer that control over? And, you know, the answer is really they don't have a choice, but they, they wish they did, and a lot of them are trying to stand in the way of it. Um, Chevy Tahoe, and if you're familiar with what happened with The Apprentice with Chevy Tahoe, I actually, they, they, they let users create their own commercials. There were a couple of commercials created that were very critical of the impact of SUVs on the environment and as gas guzzlers, and, and Chevy left them up there. And there was a debate in the industry. I mean, I think it was brilliant that they left it up there, and other people think it was the stupidest thing in the world. I was at a conference at Microsoft out in Seattle, and, and somebody from the audience from a major marketer, I think from one of the drug companies, Pfizer or whatever, stood up and he said, how did, you know, that was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in marketing. And I was monitoring the panel and I said, I think it's one of the smartest things I've ever seen in marketing because their consumers are smart. They respect the intent, well, a lot of consumers aren't smart, but let's assume that consumers are fairly smart. And if I, anything, in my theoretical world, you know, in my view of it, they're going to have more respect for Chevy because they know that, that SUVs are gas guzzlers. They know they're controversial products. And they'll probably respect the marketer more for allowing that honest conversation to go on than they would for trying to turn this into just another happy, you know, um, not credible message for the brand. So that kind of thing, though, is, is still, you know, a huge shock to the system for the ad industry. And uh, the guy from Burger King, Russ Klein, um, spoke at this conference, A&A conference that I was at last week. And he, he said, you know, a lot of people are still waiting for all of this to shake out in new media. They're waiting for better measurement systems, uh, proof of, you know, that this stuff works, standards, uh, you know, just for, for, you know, some people are hoping it'll go away still. I mean, you, somebody actually gave a speech about the world without the Internet, but as if it were a desirable thing. Um, I swear. They try to be funny, but, you know, it was one of these shockingly, you know, ridiculously fearful, fear-based kind of uh, uh, speeches. But Russ Klein said, you know, good, you guys wait, keep waiting. You keep waiting, and I'm going to just keep doing things in the real world. And so you're beginning to see some brave, you know, brave marketers um, working in that way. Volkswagen's been doing a lot more in that way. And whether you like or not what they do, I give them a lot of credit for trying and for kind of respecting this transfer of control. That was a long answer. Hi, um, I'm embarrassed to say I was on the phone with my um, storage guy who I'm very close with these days, so um, funny that you brought that up. Um, I'm curious about how uh, marketing efforts are changing as um, global markets expand and your audience changes. Uh, how marketing is very, and advertising is very targeted in ways, and sometimes certain groups are targeted in one way uh, versus another. So. If the world is becoming mainstream, how will that impact how messages are created and disseminated? That's a great question. Um, the answer, as, as, as with most things, is that, is that we're seeing a, a, a debate over that as well. We actually just did a conference on, on Eastern Europe, and, and we held it in Frankfurt a month or so ago. And um, there were a number of speakers who were talking about the topic of, of taking global brands, marketing them in Western Europe and versus Eastern Europe, marketing them globally versus... And um, most people, I think, are beginning to understand that you can't be 
one thing to all consumers around the world. And, and you know, they had been think global, act local, but it's really not even about that. But it's more about um, the, the former CMO at McDonald's had an interesting phrase called brand journalism, but, but it was about kind of shaping the brand to the situation and, and this idea that you did not have to be you know, one thing out there. I mean, it, it annoyed him that, that McDonald's, even within the U.S., would do ads that really played up the Playland, um, you know, feature in restaurants, which he said was actually telling teenagers, don't come anywhere near this place. And, and McDonald's began to realize that they can play that up in, in when they're, you know, again, it goes back to, to content in context. You can play that up when you're talking to moms in this medium, and you should play up something else when you're talking to teens here, as long as you can deliver. I mean, obviously, the, the, um, this, the, the potential scary part of that is that, you know, you make up the message to suit the audience, and you can't actually deliver on the brand promise. But I think the same thing is happening around the world now, that, that you know, companies like McDonald's are realizing um, that they have to be seen as local brands in the markets that they're in. And you're, you're hearing there, there are fewer and fewer people with global titles. Uh, they might have a global title, but they don't really have global control, per se. They kind of go market to market and make sure that what's happening in that market is right for that market. But there was a, an idea of this global ad community, and it's down to about literally 100 people who all know each other and kind of move around. We actually had a, a, a magazine called Ad Age Global, and it failed in part because there was no global ad market. And, and these decisions are made at the local level so that even if you deal with, with a global brand, if you deal with um, uh, we're doing a conference in China, and, and we went to, to talk to Yahoo and CNET about sponsoring it, and they put us in touch with people in China because there's nobody in the U.S. who can make those decisions for them. So I, I think that's a better way for companies to go than when they were trying, especially uh, in today's world, obviously, for U.S.-based brands to be trying to kind of impose themselves on the rest of the world without understanding those markets would be a mistake. Um, but there, there are a few people who still sort of say, you can have one global message, but most people are, are moving much towards the understand the market, understand the consumer, and adapt yourself to the, to the environment. How hard is it to kill a brand? Um, given uh, you know, integrated strategies and multiple platforms and, like you say, localized markets, um, why is there still this discourse of, of fear? If we think, think about the Chevy Tahoe thing, the guys who got on there to create those anti-Chevy Tahoe ads, probably not the people who are actually going to buy a Tahoe anyway. And that's, and like you say, I mean, I think leaving up there was a smart decision because it at least acknowledges it, uh, the, the, the authenticity of the gesture to let people make their own ads, even if it's completely inauthentic. Um, I mean, it's that idea of gas-guzzling SUVs is part of the discursive environment in which the SUV circulates. So it's not kind of not surprising that people would do those things. It, it's interesting that Chevy leaves it up there, but the people who make those ads probably uh, have been saying that thing forever, and people who buy SUVs probably already hear that, and they, they weigh up themselves the choice about whether they want to run over kids and do all of those things that people in SUVs do, or whether they don't want to. And if they didn't want to, they'd buy a hybrid. So how, you know, what's the real danger of, of giving up this, this bit of, of control? Um, it's a great question. How hard is it to kill a brand? I think it's, I think it's very hard. To, I mean, assuming you're talking about a brand with some strength and some equity to begin with, it can be very hard. I remember when the, uh, the, the restrictions on tobacco marketing first came along, there was an article in the New York Times that assessed the brand equity that Marlboro had built up and, and, and kind of, I think it concluded that, that they could probably go 
something like 100 years without running a Marlboro ad before they would lose their number one market share. I mean, it was a made-up you know, exercise, but, but brands that have built up a lot of brand equity don't die easily. But if you look at what's happening, for example, in Detroit right now into those products, I mean, it's about, you know, are you delivering the right products? Are you meeting consumers' needs? Are they reliable products? Are they dependable? Do they fulfill the promise? I mean, I think the only real way that brands kill themselves is by not delivering on, on the promise that they make. I mean, there's a million definitions of what a brand is, and, and I've always fallen back on a brand as a promise to the consumer. You open a can of Campbell's soup, you have a certain expectation of a certain quality of product and consistency of quality of that product or lack of quality, however you define it, but you know you should know what you're getting and, and when they don't deliver on it. Um, but... I think in today's world where, where you know, word can spread so quickly and, 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 and you know, these, these networks of people can, can pass things along so quickly, even if you can't kill a brand, you can definitely knock one for a loop pretty easily. And um, you can take these messages and spread them obviously wider and faster than anybody could before. And I think if it's a credible knock, you're right. I, th I don't think the Tahoe thing really was a danger. I don't think there was any danger in leaving it up. And again, if anything, I think there was a benefit to it. But there are other cases where, you know, these things can and do damage brands. And, and, and then it becomes, how is the brand responding? And how are they using, you know, public relations in particular and, and networks to kind of rebuild credibility, rebuild trust? Uh, there was a speaker from HP at this conference also that I attended. I'm sorry to keep referencing it, but there's a lot of good stuff there. And, and HP is actually doing a lot of really cool things in the marketplace, and they've got some really good products now. But somebody asked them this whole corporate, you know, um, pretexting and espionage and everything, how is that going to impact HP? And, and, and surprisingly for a marketer, instead of trying to spin it, he said the only honest answer is I don't know yet. But what we hope and think is that this will, and he said the actions of some of these people were inexcusable. I'm not, you know, I'm not even going to get into that part, but it was terrible, it was inexcusable, and they should be dealt with in, in the way that they need to be dealt with. But for us, we think it's going to be a corporate problem and not a product problem, and it's not going to hurt us with consumers because it's not about the quality or the dependability of our products. And I think he's right. I don't think it will hurt them uh, in that case. Um, I'm trying to think as I talk of a good example of a brand that has been knocked for a loop recently, and I'm not getting one, but... I actually wanted to uh, take the other perspective on that, that, okay, that when HP bought Compaq, they actually downgraded Compaq, which was considered a good PC brand, to essentially a low-cost brand. Right. And also HP was downgraded from being essentially a high-quality, um, like an MIT-type brand, to being sort of more a cross-the-river brand, now, somebody who just wants to cut jobs to get bottom line, uh, and that was Carly Fiorina who was responsible mm -hmm. for that. I think she did an excellent job of repositioning HP in a different way. It's a good point. It, it, you know, and the, the compact HP argument was similar to what happened with AT&T and Singular, and it's, you know, what is the value of these brands and what do you do to them when you shift them? Um, but, you know, Brand equity built up over time is a, is a, is a very powerful thing and, and not an easy thing to kill. But I, I do think, and it's a great question. I wish I had a better example of, of brands that have been knocked for a loop, but I know there have been some. Um, you don't have to take my word on that. <laughs> I haven't proved it. But I, but I, I, I do think there are cases where um, they, can be, they can be thrown off and, uh, and have a hard time 
sort of getting getting back on their feet because you know the voice travels so quickly uh, with these new media. But the fear is is even if it's not based in reality, they're still they they, they you know again think about that passive consumer. Um, these marketers and these agencies have literally, you know, controlled the message right up until it hits your brain. I had a theory for a while, which which hadn't never really proved out, but that public relations agencies had a chance to pass ad agencies and helping marketers make this transition under the theory that PR agencies, when they were dealing with journalists, always had to tell their clients, listen, we can shape the story and tell the story and craft the story up to a certain point, but then we have to let it go to the journalist, and they're going to do other things to it, and when it comes out, it's going to be, you know, you know, again, we can try and influence it as much as possible, but we can't control it to the final output, whereas advertising agencies could control it, could control the message right to that final point, um, and PR agencies had to teach their clients to let go of the message at a certain point. Uh, but they don't, they don't want to, and, and it is probably, which I think is the heart of your question, somewhat an irrational fear. And, and, and again, it's kind of a moot point because they don't really have a choice um, in any case. I mean, again, I, I kind of mentioned this, but I'm shocked at, at Hollywood, and I guess I really shouldn't be, but, but trying to hang on to this idea that they can control the distribution method when, in fact, the consumers are clearly demanding that, you know, hey, if I, if I hate going to movie theaters and I've paid for a great movie set up at home and I have a young child and can't get away anyway, I still want to be able to see this movie when it comes out. If you want to look at the brand that went for the knock, I mean, the RIAA as a brand right. copped, a, copped a massive knock by the fact that its product, um, which if we, if we, hi, class, you know, <laughs> if we think about it, its product, which was fundamentally a distribution system, was wrested from its, from its hands and its reaction was one that should have been managed a whole lot better. Yeah. But instead, they started to slap the, the, the consumers and delivering bung product. And if we go, and if we go back, so if we, and so I think the RAA is probably an example, but that might stretch right. it a little bit because... I don't know, PR and stuff. Um, but if we, if we go back, things like Atari, who failed to, as you say, deliver on the promise. I mean, and, and when they buried thousands and thousands of copies of E.T. in the Mexico desert because it was a crap video game. I mean, you know, and, and, and Atari, I mean, that was one of the final death throes for Atari as a product developer. It's the same with the Coke thing. New Coke could have killed Coke. But I'm, I'm glad that you raised cigarette advertising because I'm from down under. And when I was a lad, they banned cigarette advertising everywhere and yet we still puff away like it's a cool thing to do and so despite the fact that there is no advertising and that that there is a, an entire industry we call surgery set up to teach us how bad cigarettes are they're still selling you know the american tobacco and all that sort of stuff so i mean it's, it, it is an interesting question i think it is as you say about control yeah. and it just seems to be this idea that that what we control is, is, or what the product we produce is the message. And I wonder whether the product isn't actually the message, it's, it's the relation. Or maybe it works the other way around. Yeah. And that they don't produce the relationship, they produce the, the message. And that they need to always turn it over. And that's what the entire push marketing has always been about, is about opening up a, a space for, for a discussion with, with the consumer. I agree. Um, yeah, you know, the music industry thing, it's a little bit off track, but you, you look at you still talk to people at, at Sony and say, how did you guys miss iPod when you had, you know, portable music? And the answer is mostly because they owned a record company. And the record company was like, you can't, you can't put this thing out on the market that you know, will allow people to steal our product. 
And, you know, again, anybody who's tried to stand in the way of consumer empowerment clearly gets steamrolled by it eventually. But um, I had a conversation with somebody in a TV business three years ago about DVRs and their impact, which is still debatable, but I still believe that, that fundamentally true. And again, it's this idea of, you know, I, I don't want somebody else to set the schedule for me. I want to set it for myself. And, and he kept just insisting and insisting that it wasn't going to happen. And I finally said, you know what, you're a lot smarter than I am. I'm not even going to and you've been doing this a lot longer. You can't actually mean what you're saying. And he, and he gave me one of these, yeah, but, it, but I'm not going to let it happen on my watch. And he retired two years later. He, he did, and he's got a ton of money, and he moved to New Mexico or something like that, and you know, he doesn't have to deal with it. It lets it be somebody else's problem. So I think that's, there's a lot of that transition and a lot of that kind of, there was a lot of resistance. To, even in the ad business now, I could see it at all the conferences I go to. Two years ago, this stuff was all a threat. Now they see it all as an opportunity, and that's a good mindset shift, but it still doesn't mean they're going to succeed at it because there's a lot of people kind of doing crap things or they've decided it's an opportunity, but they don't really know what they want to do. And if you talk to their ad agencies, they kind of say, and you say, okay, so, you know, hey, Folgers, you know, when they asked you to create Tolerate Mornings, I'm making this up, obviously, but did they actually know what they wanted out of it or did they just kind of say, get me one of those? I've read about social networks. I've read about user content. I've read about blogs, I've read whatever. Get me one of those. And the answer is too many marketers, ours just, you know, they read about something and they say, I've got to have one of those. And you say, why? And they go, I don't know, because that guy does. And, and that's how you end up with a lot of crap stuff and a lot of noise in the marketplace. But again, you wouldn't really think the reality can be, you know, it sounds like an overly simplified, nobody's really sitting there getting paid millions of dollars and making decisions like that, are they? And the answer is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> All right, well, my question is, um, if when you're with, dealing with like um, marketing and branding on the worldwide level, you, you need to like localize the um, brand message. Um, how does that need um, interact with the fact that um, like product placement and um, branded um, Entertainment, I mean, like tends to be like, um, at least, if not known, um, like available um, worldwide. I mean, like, I mean, like, um, for instance, um, in, in the, there's like the, the, yeah, the, the first. Like, like, like after the, the the first first season of Lost, like um, the local networks, like each had their own like online campaign, to, like to keep up um, interest um, in um, the TV show um, between seasons. But I mean, like basically, like all of these um, kind of like. Like modes of well, the, 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 these online campaigns were available, like you know, all over the world because you know they were on the net. And like for like the second time through, they like um, lost basically like ch chose to do like one project, and it's not just like you know like um, to like let the brand be confused about having like eighteen different measures. And like like how do these two like needs? like work with each other? Good question. Um, I think, I haven't thought this through, so I'm going to be making up my answer a little bit on the fly, but 
but I'll also talk about American Idol, which I think is an interesting case study. But I, I think the answer is that even though everything is now available on the web, there's really only a, a small number of people who are actually going to know and, and find and seek out and, and, and reconcile or not these kinds of you know, different executions. And you know, one of, it, it's sort of similar to what happened with celebrities trying to hide the fact that they were doing endorsements in Japan and all of that. And suddenly you could have the commercial. And we would put some of those commercials on adage.com early on. And they'd scream and go, you can't do that. And be like, yeah, we can. <laughs> it exists. It's a global medium. Um, but uh, there was a um, pretty racy McDonald's campaign in Japan. And then it kind of got picked up and, and, and brought, you know, shown here quite a bit um, that showed the clown and all these different iterations, including as a, a sexy woman dressed up as the McDonald's clown. And, and, and I think, um, I think again, unless unless your messages are so inconsistent as to be as to sort of render the others or each other false, um, it, it's it's not something that's really going to hurt you. And it's, and I still think again that it's only a small number of people that are going to that are going to realize that. I I don't think most brands are going towards though the one global message. And in fact, uh, American Idol is a great example of essentially they've built a template. And there is American Idol in, in, I don't know the number of countries now, but it's a lot, um, including you know, places you wouldn't expect to find it. And, and the template is, is familiar enough that you would, you know, if you were a US viewer, you could go to Dubai and turn on you know, Dubai Idol, and, and you would actually know instantly what show you were watching, and you'd kind of be able to follow it. And yet, you know, the cultural references and the types of music and the types of hosts and all of that are going to be suited to that local audience. So I think there are. Um, it's more going to be about having, you know, even McDonald's actually, though they have this sort of brand journalism approach, they do have the I'm loving it tagline as a global tagline, but the interpretations of the tagline are, are, are local. And so I think it's more about having a global template that's interpreted locally because that template should ensure that your messages don't contradict each other and cancel each other out. How was that for made up? <laughs> Sounded almost credible. Um, <laughs> all right, like, then... How about um, product product placement? I mean, worldwide media. I mean, like, is it, is it all being like localized um, via computer or what? Mm. Um, no, there's some of that going on of like literally swapping out products in different markets. Um, there's been some of that. That's happened more um, to to in the syndicated TV market to add product placements after the fact and charge for them, um, but. I guess the answer there is no. I don't, as far as I know, for, for big films, for example, that are doing it and that are being distributed globally, I think the brands are going out globally as well. Although there, again, you could argue that, you know, the, the, you're not going to have a commercial for those products inside of the films. You're going to have, you know, some use of the brand that in theory, you know, uh, at least if not always in execution, is kind of a credible, you know, match with the message of the brand and therefore you know, again, should probably fall under a template enough that if the BMW is there, it's there, you know, showing performance and, and that no matter what the local execution of the ads might be for BMW and other markets, the execution thing should be an underlying theme. So, um, but I don't, I don't, I think obviously digital technologies will give that capability. And, um, but when that starts happening, it will probably be more about realizing that they can make more money by selling the product placement 30 times than it will be about 
making sure the brand is credible to the market in those cases. I think that will be driven more by somebody realizing the financial upside of swapping it out. I assume that sometimes brands or companies have a hard time to let go of their brand because either the product is a little crappy or they use underage people to produce it or sometimes they, they ruin the, the environment while doing this, as in the example you gave. And I wonder how this particip participation of consumers in the brand, how it affects like real life things as opposed to the symbolic aspect of the brand, uh, like, I don't know, re redesigning the logo or doing other things with it. Um. In terms of whether they will end up doing things like helping to redesign logos or whether they'll help to expose and change practices. Like does, does it push them to, to, to make changes that they, they didn't make before? Sorry if this come out. Yeah, no, no, I'm the trying. The Maoist yeah. question for this um, colloquium. So I think she's saying, is, it, is, is there a kind of citizen dimension right. in I think there should be. I don't think I've seen a lot of evidence of it yet. And um, uh, probably generationally as, as it becomes. But, but I don't know. Is, is it all that different from, I mean, you know, we've known for a long time about Nike and, and the charges of, of sweatshop labor. And, and it's not like anybody, it's not that that hasn't been hidden. And yet it, it you know, didn't really have a big impact for a long time. Um, you know, is it, I guess it's really just that electronic version of, of, you know, when I was in college and we would march outside of Citibank because they were, you know, in South Africa supporting apartheid. And I guess the answer is yes, but I don't know that it's any different than sort of just it's put a megaphone to what was already there. But at the same time, marketers uh, tend to be very good at resisting those kinds of uh, uh, that kind of pressure, and they tend to be it, uh, attempts to boycott or really put pressure that way tend to fail more often than not, and a lot of marketers know that. So as skittish as they are on most things, they tend to kind of try and wait for those kinds of things to blow over, and uh, they try and kind of shout above them or whatever. Uh, I think your question makes sense in terms of where things are heading directionally. You would think that the the, the, the voice of the people might overwhelm their ability to shout over it at some point, but I don't think we're there yet. I have a question about metrics. Um, so far, you know, it's clear that we have a, a series of changes in media technologies and in the practices, both of consumers and producers. Um, and a couple of times in your, in, your in your remarks, you mentioned that, well, these are, these are the numbers they give us, but of course, those aren't right. Um, of course, those are highly refined systems, and they're used in a defensive way. They're also used to build the, the road bumps. Um, we know that the technologies are changing the way we can do metrics, and there's certainly an argument about what paradigms we should be using. But I'm just curious about how you see that. I mean, from your position where you're kind of above the fray, but you're sort of seeing different people deploy different sets of numbers, the beauty of numbers has always been the illusion that they are somehow objective, um, and yet we know they're discursive acts like any other. So how does that, where do you see that going in terms of these other broader changes in technology and practices? I think the technology is going to ultimately make all of these things just so blatantly accountable that they're not going to be able to hide from real numbers. 
Uh, Nielsen is finally about to start doing and just started doing commercial ratings. They've had the ability to do commercial ratings for quite some time. And, and as much as agencies and media companies say that they're all about accountability, the truth is they're terrified of accountability. And what's going to happen because people have all sort of conspired, if you will, to accept you know, these measurement systems that were deeply flawed, like Nielsen ratings for a long time, um, if, if they really just suddenly shifted from those numbers to the real numbers, they would have to sort of, they, they couldn't do it. You'd have companies going out of business, you'd have, you know, you know they'd, they'd be suddenly paying 15%, you know, of what they pay for. So there's going to have to almost be, I think, a transition plan developed by the industry for how we're going to begin to accept and realize that, yes, there's going to be, have to be some adjustments to the pricing model and the valuation models and all of that, but, um, but again, we can't keep resisting knowing that, we, that technology is going to enable us to, to measure things. And then the other, you know, it, it, the ROI thing, to me, is what's really interested in, interesting is you begin to talk about um, these marketing plans as ultimately, you know, completely integrated, completely seamless, Product design is part of it. You know, we were saying earlier that uh, David Rockwell is actually designing a new JetBlue terminal at JFK, and he's doing it with the help of a choreographer and an ad agency, and it's all about how people move through spaces and how... And obviously, that's a brand statement, ultimately. And, and at some point, when you say, what's the, what's the return on each individual piece of it, there, there are going to be some metrics that kind of, within the marketing mix model, try and determine the role of each individual piece. But to me, the ultimate ROI is just did your sales go up or down? And if everything now is, if everything is a brand communication in essence, that's the only ROI that really matters. I'm going off on a little bit of a different tangent. Coming back to your question, um, at the same time that I said that I admire someone like Russ Klein for saying, I'm just going to go out there and do it, I'm not going to wait, what's also clear is that marketers will not devote significant portions of their budget to any new thing until they have some benchmarks to measure it against. And even the flawed measures like Nielsen ratings, if they're nothing else, they're a good benchmark because, you know, and, and even the same thing. So PIB, which counts magazine ad dollars, at the end of the day, they're a benchmark because you could still look at them. And if you're in a certain category like women's service magazines or newsweeklies, you know what the average discount is in your category and you can find the real numbers, but, but it's a, it's a, it, everybody's looked at on the same benchmark measurement. And I think some of the new measurements, you know, maybe have their flaws as well, but there's this understanding that, that until I have a benchmark to put something against, and until there are some standards, I'm not going to take it seriously. And that actually can really hurt new media. So I think the first step for a lot of these new disciplines is to begin to establish some benchmarks and standards. But clearly, we're heading to a place with technology where the real accountability is going to become inescapable. And things like commercial ratings, which the industry has fought for a long time, are going to have to happen. But then, you know, the next question, right now, um, media buyers, the, uh, the guys who pay for the, uh, you know, and value the commercial time that they're buying, don't want to give any value at all to DVR viewers. And I think that's ridiculous. I understand that they're going to have to give them some form of discounted value, but to say that they have no value at all, when for some shows, as much as 20% of the audience is now coming in a time-shifted manner, is not fair to the networks either. It's not, a, it's not a good way to measure who's interacting with their products. So I don't know if I'm even coming close to answer the question. Yeah, no, but I mean, you're, <laughs> what your you're, you're end comments especially, because it is a bit like the gold standard where what's the intrinsic value of this stuff? Who knows? It's a, it, but it is a benchmark that allows us to communicate with one another. And then it's a 
big question about who the first movers are going to be because it's a lot of this not on my watch right. mentality. I mean, and what is the, you know, ultimately the industry needs an accepted currency, right? And it almost doesn't matter if it's flawed or not as long as it's the currency and everybody kind of deals off of it on some level. But I, I do think the accountability thing and the technology thing is going to make it uh, so that you're going to have a lot more transparency than we've had. And some of that's going to be, you know, again, everybody's always known without having to see commercial ratings They've kind of known instinctively that probably three or four out of every ten viewers is wandering away from the TV set or changing the channel when a commercial comes on. But because they've been basing their ad rates on the overall program rating and not the commercial rating, they haven't had to confront it. Now they're going to have to confront it. But I, at the same token, again, I don't think it'll be fair for the media buyers who have been complicit in, in accepting the flawed Nielsen data for so long to suddenly say, well, now you've got to cut my rates by 40%. It just, the system couldn't handle that kind of a shock. So, but but the, you know, the answer isn't let's not do commercial ratings. The answer is let's do commercial ratings and let's figure out how we're going to value what's actually going on there. So we're talking about a currency fluctuation, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, or a fluctuation in the value of the, of the currency. Um, the DVR question I find interesting because TiVo a couple of uh, uh, six or so weeks ago announced a, a back-end system that it would it would trial that would provide up-to-the-minute viewing rates even on time-shifted content. And so it's it's a typical um, uh, people meet a system in that you sign up to TiVo and they give you prizes or something or other for being a participant. Um, but in in return, you know, X number of TiVo boxes will report back home who's watching stuff where. If we see, I mean, and this seems a way for DVRs to account for um, for, for viewership in ways that that broadcast television can't. Um, do we? Is there the potential here for this to suffer a consumer sort of retaliation? As you know, my DVR is reporting when I'm I'm doing these sorts of things because it, it requires a greater investment that you need to make rather than just plugging, a, particularly a, a, a non-market DVR into the wall. Right. Um, you know, all of a sudden you have to register who you are and, and what, what you're doing to use the service. I think in things where, where you know, it's going to raise some of the privacy concerns as well and they have to prove that they're using this data in the aggregate and not, you know, using personal viewing habits to show that, you know, you're watching nothing but Girls Gone Wild or whatever and people can then, you know, look that up about you or, or, or whatever the case may be. Um, but... As long as, as long as it's either transparent to people that this data is being collected and they have the ability to opt out of that or that they, you know, are incentivized to opt into it, you know, I think it's like anything else. It's going to come down to, you know, who participates and what's an acceptable sample and all of those kinds of things. But, again, I think that, that as long as you can ensure that there's a protection, and people have shown that they're willing to give up um, a pretty fair amount of, the, of what we call privacy in that way, if they can, you know, sense a value in return. And um, so I, I think there's, there's that piece of it. And, and I think, again, they understand that, that with technology, there really aren't secrets. I mean, I don't think anybody kind of believes anymore that, that there's not a way to track what they're watching if they're using a DVR or what websites they're surfing or whatever. So it's just, again, a matter of kind of, you know, convincing them that this data is only being used in the aggregate and, and not, you know, being used in any individual way. Um, but I don't, I don't think there'll be a significant in, impediment in terms of a consumer backlash. Um, consumers are also pretty lazy at the end of the day. As much as they kind of like control on the one hand, they, when, when we started uh, an interactive section in Ad Age in, in 93, inter called it Interactive Media and Marketing, so we were there pretty early, but the whole first year it existed, it was all about interactive television 
Time Warner's trials in Orlando, and, and that was going to be the big thing, and that just collapsed. I mean, it was just too expensive, and it was costing them, I don't, I don't even remember the numbers anymore per home, but I think it was $600 or more, you know, per household that they were wiring up. Um, and then, you know, over the next year, this section kind of started covering CD-ROMs and kiosks and, and, and proprietary dial-up services, and then that morphed into this thing called the World Wide Web, which suddenly became this commercial thing in 95, and obviously went on from there. And, and I, you know, even in the late 90s, I kept saying, interactive TV is going to come back, and it's the same thing with this consumer control, because the more people understand that I can use the Internet to get the sports scores when I want them, the weather report when I want it, I don't have to wait for the evening news to come on at a time when I'm not home, et cetera, et cetera, the more annoyed they're going to be with the relative stupidity of the box and, you know, the television box, which is going to force this interactive television. But what, what I guess I really meant and, and wasn't, you know, grasping correctly was it really wasn't interactive television in the way that people saw it 10 years ago, meaning I'm going to watch, see the sweater Jennifer Aniston's wearing and hit a button and buy it. It was control over, over the interaction with the material. And, and you know, again, the rise of, the, of DVRs has proven that people kind of want that kind of control but it still doesn't, it still leaves television as largely a passive medium. So I think there's still evidence, because people who say this DVR thing won't happen tend to say, well, because I still want to come home and just plop in front of the TV set at the end of a hard day and be entertained. Well, you know, DVR doesn't require anything more of that than you. It's just instead of, you know, hitting, you know, 004, you hit list, click, you know, play. So, um, wherever I was going with that, but, but consumers being fairly lazy and passive about most of these media uh, uh, still, obviously not so much with the internet, but, but with the interaction with television and DVR in particular, I don't think they're going to rise up and, and kind of knock down the system. Microphone. This podcast is going to be sold for millions and I get a 50% cut of all revenue from the podcast. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the innovation or if there's any room for innovation as, I, as you all try to figure out what consumers are doing these days um, in, in the industry and anything that stands out to you as um, a new direction or something particularly innovative. Yeah, I think, um, I think you know, I, 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 I've, I've kind of used Burger King, but I, I really like what Burger King did. They had, um, first of all, the... Uh, uh, the confidence to kind of speak only to their core audience, even at the uh, risk of alienating other parts of their user base, and that's something that a lot of advertisers don't have. Again, they, they tend to get wishy-washy about it. McDonald's tends to get a little wishy-washy about it. Um, and, and I don't know, again, I'm kind of assuming on some level, which is probably a fairly correct assumption that most of you being the age you are probably are pretty up to speed on what Burger King's been doing marketing-wise. Is that fair or not fair? Um, but essentially, you know, especially, I don't, I'm going to get the numbers somewhat wrong, but, but a, a huge percentage of their sales come from, from, from guys 15 to 24, basically. And so they focused their marketing there. And they didn't really, you know, first of all, they tried to use media outlets where if you were, you know, a 45-year-old woman, you probably weren't going to run into the subservient chicken website and, you know, started becoming more mass in terms of media coverage and then maybe you went there or not or whatever. But, 
they, they kind of felt like if you go there and seek it out and find it and you don't like it, well, then just go somewhere else. And, and, and it was a very confident um, approach. And, and actually, uh, there's an agency, an ad agency, uh, called Crispin Porter and Bogusky out of Miami, which if, if you follow marketing at all, it's almost boring that, that they are constantly held up as the, the most innovative agency in our business. And, and the answer is it's because it's really true. And it's because it's an agency that was, that was, from its founding, never had a bias towards any one particular medium. They tended to seek out clients, and Burger King is now one of their clients and a great example, that were the number two or number three player in their field, that were underdogs, that were willing to take more risks, and that often also didn't have the budgets to just do big mass media ad campaigns. So, you know, almost by necessity, Crispin Porter had to be a more innovative um, uh, Platform neutral, discipline neutral agency from the start, and and it and it and it shows up now that they've got some really big underdog brands um, like Volkswagen and and like Burger King uh, coming into them. Uh, supposedly they're talking to Nike right now, which is interesting because nobody thinks about Nike as an underdog, and in fact Nike is a very innovative marketer as well. Um, but I think that they've just done this brilliant job of saying we're going to focus on the core audience. We're going to be really edgy. We're going to celebrate uh, things that we're not supposed to celebrate, like cheese and bacon and lots of meat. And because this, you know, because we know this 15-year-old kid doesn't care about his arteries hardening right now, and so we're not going to care. And yes, we're going to get criticized for that, but we're going to stay strong and we're going to stay true to that message. And you know, again, I think it's controversial, but I think it's really smart. Um, you know, Apple's probably an overreach because you could say so much of it is the product, but the marketing there has been brilliant as well. Uh, and, and, you know, again, it's, it's the vision of, of, of Steve Jobs, the CEO, being very involved directly in the marketing and the brand essence. Uh, a guy named uh, Lee Clow, who runs Shy Day creatively, the agency for, for Apple. And Lee literally flies up from L.A. To, to Cupertino every Thursday and has lunch with Steve Jobs. And they talk, you know, about every aspect of, of, of Apple uh, and its marketing. And I think that um, Procter & Gamble, very surprisingly, has been uh, really smart. I mentioned in the speech that now have more designers than engineers at P&G, but they've really made great use of package design and product design uh, and, and sort of those aesthetic values to kind of deepen the emotional attachment, if you will, if you believe in such a thing, with the consumers and to be able to put a premium price on a lot of the products. They've also done a lot of innovation, if you think about just how people clean their homes, things like the Swiffer mop and everything have just been, you know, these products didn't exist, you know, five or six years ago, and now everybody's, you know, under the cabinet has Swiffers and has, you know, all kinds of instant wipes and, and all of that, and it's really kind of revolutionized an area that nobody thought could be revolutionized. Um, another brand success story of, of the last couple of years is um, Dyson Vacuums which have basically, um, on, on a huge premium pricing, I mean, they're very expensive machines, it's now the number one vacuum cleaner in sales in the U.S. And, you know, nobody was expecting that. that, that was, you just figured that would be a very high-end niche brand that could still be very successful and profitable, but would never actually, in, in volume, actually surpass, you know, the, the largest vacuum cleaner companies than they have. And, in fact, Hoover sued them. Um, you know, in, in this desperate attempt to kind of hold them down, uh, which I don't think is going to succeed, and I don't remember what the exact basis of it was, but it was clearly some kind of like, just shut up and go compete instead of trying to do it this way. Um, but, but again, you know, product design, innovation, better products, you know, I, I think 
if you look at the network fall TV schedule, um, it's a lot better this year and the ratings are improving and there are still some really huge underlying issues that, that network TV has to face and, and that aren't, haven't gone away in the least, but they've proven that quality of product still matters and innovation in product still matters and, and they stopped doing the kind of, not completely, but, but they slowed the rate at which they were just doing this kind of copycat you know, cookie-cutter TV program that they had relied on the last couple of years, and they've introduced some more daring concepts, and, and you know, some of those are going to fail, but, but, you know, some of them are going to really work, and they're modeled, not surprisingly, after HBO and the originality of the programs there, and you have shows like, you know, Studio 60, which even though the numbers aren't through the roof, has actually got the most affluent, educated audience on network TV in, in just th the last three weeks of any TV show. So, you know, it, it comes down as well to, you know, product quality and innovation, and, and you have seen, you know, some examples like those of, of that happening. I have a second question. Sure. I was just curious, what are the um, sort of requirements of a creative artist in your field now to deal with all of these innovations and this changing market? It's a good question. We're actually we're doing a we're doing an event in in New York, the one that that Gary and Rockwell are speaking at, uh, and it's called Redefining Creativity. And, and there's a theory that the worst thing the advertising industry ever did was to actually create a creative department within agencies, therefore kind of telling everybody else it wasn't their responsibility to be creative. And you know, again, it's one of those things. It's a little bit of a joke and, and a little bit of reality because you literally got to the point where you said, well, those are the idea guys over there. And, and more and more, there's this recognition that creativity is, is everyone's job. And, and I think one of the more interesting things that's happened in the business in the last couple of years is that um, media agencies, rather than what have been called creative agencies, have actually become more creative. And they've become more creative because it's their job to understand where the consumer is going to be to find that, you know, quote-unquote touch point uh, with the consumer and then, to, and then to figure out the right tone of message, you know, the right tone that you're going to speak to them in, the right voice you're going to speak to them in when you find them in that place. And, and then they kind of call in the creative and say, now can you come up with a message that kind of fits this tone and fits this context and fits this place so that there, people began to say, well, media, the media guys were always kind of the, seen as the, they were, they were the nerds of the industry. They were the, they were the last guys to, to ever speak in the pitch meetings for new accounts. And they would basically, you would come up with a creative message and then you'd come up with a plan for where you want to run it and then you'd send the media guy out to negotiate the price with the magazine and just, you know, whichever voice you got the best price, that's where you ran the ad. And, and, and there's been a lot of creativity. Uh, so, so I think long-winded long way around, as most of these answers seem to be right now, I apologize, but um, you need to really understand the consumer and where they are and what frame of mind they're in. Um, to be a, a good creative in the business these days rather than just have an ability to write a tagline or, or understand a message. On a bigger level, the technology question, a lot of these creative agencies kind of split off internet and new media units into their own agencies a couple of years ago. And that was in part about talent retention because they couldn't keep a lot of these young, talented people who wanted to go make more money elsewhere or wanted to, you know, higher level, more responsible jobs. So you had these big ad agencies like DDB create something called Tribal DDB. And it made sense at the time. What's happening now is that as these big agencies like DDB are trying to reinvent themselves and say it's unfair to say that we're only, you know, about creating TV commercials, and yet every time we have a good creative idea that involves the Internet, somebody goes, wait, we're not allowed to do that. Isn't that Tribal DDB's role? 
So you're seeing now kind of a reintegration of, of those, you know, new media agencies into the, you know, in, back into the big agencies. Um, but what you're also seeing is, is a bit of an age split that nobody really wants to talk about. But the truth is that for the most part, the skill sets needed are a completely different set of skills to create, you know, an online campaign than they are to create a TV commercial. And this question of, you know, can the guys who do TV commercials, as long as they, they can come up with the right idea, get, you can get, find somebody else to execute it, or do they just not have the tools? And I think that's something the industry is confronting now, and I think there's more of a, um, uh, more of a likelihood that a lot of these guys who came up as creators of TV commercials will not be able to really successfully make that transition fully uh, than anybody wants to admit right now, because it really does take an entirely different uh, skill set and, and increasingly an entirely different you know mindset as well. I was saying earlier that you know with all the changes going on, I I understand them as a consumer, um, not just an observer. I get most of them. I have a DVR at home. I've got you know BlackBerry. I got my I couldn't you know live without my iPod literally because it's the only way I could get through a five mile run. Um, you know, the cell phone, all these things. So as they impact marketing, I get it, because I get it in my own life, not just as an observer. Social networks are the first thing that, like, I just don't get. It's like I get it intellectually, but I don't, it's not going to be part of my life. And I, I don't come back from vacation and have any desire to put my photos on Flickr. I don't want to create a, a, a MySpace page. You know, I don't, and, and so it scares me, because I'm, I say only still, but I'm 39 years old. And, and until now, most of these things have felt like things that I could relate to. And you, you, you begin to see certain areas where you say, you know, my mind can't think that way because it's not, you know, it's not how I was raised. It wasn't, you know, a natural part of me. And, and you know, the same is true for kids, you know, 10 years younger than you guys, obviously, right now. And, and that's why we see, you know, so much of this innovation and so much of this brilliant thinking coming from, you know, 22-year-olds and 25-year-olds and and college students because, you know, I couldn't have come up with most of these ideas even if, I, even if I was smart enough to have had some of these ideas, you know, my mind just wouldn't have gone that way. I figured there was some, some new innovative social networking thing I saw last week that I literally just thought, this isn't just about this 22-year-old kid who did this, you know. I think, oh, I, I guess I was reading a story about the founder of Dig.com. I think he's like 23 years old now or maybe he's a little older. but. You know, and, and I was thinking, you know, part of my head went, why couldn't I have thought of that? And then part of me just went, you know, as a traditionally trained journalist, even though I've adapted somewhat to the new world, my mind would have never started there. I would have never, you know, been able to, to have the concept even, never mind the engineering, you know, back-end piece of it. But um, I don't think a lot of the people over 35, let's say, in the ad business right now who are classically trained as creators of TV commercials will very easily make this transition, even if they want to. God, that was a long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anybody else? Going once, going twice. Mm -hmm. So, well, Scott, thanks very much. Especially Thank for you all. <laughs>